Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 election is upon us, and now is the time to fight back against the war on masculinity in American society today. Thankfully, the patriots at Chalk, C-H-O-Q, are here to help real American men maximize their masculinity by boosting testosterone levels up to 20% over 90 days. I've been taking a male vitality stack from Chalk for like three years now. It is incredible. They are here to help make American men strong again. Testosterone testosterone fueled again maximize your masculinity today at choq.com use the code jesse for a massive discount on any chalk subscription for life choq.com code jesse limited time offer subscription cancelable at any time are you being influenced if you watched a blockbuster film in the last decade then there's a chance it's been influenced by the chinese communist party Here's the reality. The CCP may be running the largest influence campaign in history. In Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, investigative reporter Tiffany Meyer reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free at HollywoodTakeover.com slash Jesse. Jesse Kelly here. If you're in a situation where you feel threatened, instinct may drive you to reach for lethal means immediately. But we all want to avoid the irreversible consequences of deadly force. Enter the Berna Less Lethal Pistol Launcher equipped with tear gas and kinetic ammo to incapacitate an attacker for up to 40 minutes. It's legal in all 50 states, requires no background checks, and can be shipped right to your door. Visit Berna.com slash Jesse now for an exclusive 10% discount. Welcome to History with Jesse Kelly. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine you and your two closest buddies. You're together. Where are you? You're in a gigantic steel box. I say gigantic. Uh, You're you're sitting down. You're certainly not standing up. You're not doing jumping jacks, but you're in a steel box. Let's call it 10 by 10. Steel box driving around, though. And then the steel box stops moving. And you and your buddies are inside, and you're not sure what's going on. You can't really see outside very much. And then it starts to get hot in there. 
at first it just starts a little low, and then it starts to get really, really hot in there. And then you notice you can't touch one of the walls because it's actually starting to glow. It's so hot in there. And you know if you can't get out, you're going to cook to death like an oven with your friends in this gigantic steel box. Sounds like something out of a horror movie, right? Something out of Saw or one of those sicko movies like that. Don't lie. I know some of you like Saw. Quit lying. Anyway. What I just described for you is not something out of a horror movie. It's not something out of your worst nightmare. It's something many, many, many men lived through during the battle we're going to talk about today. I'm talking about the Battle of Kursk, the largest tank battle in the history of mankind, the largest tank battle there ever was. And because of advancements in technology making tanks less and less relevant, it's the largest tank battle there ever will be. But before we get to the Battle of Kursk and the different tanks and what happened there, let's set the story up for just a little bit. What is Kursk? Where is Kursk? Well, it's in the Soviet Union. It's in the Soviet Union, and this is the year 1943. But before we get to 43, let's remember we always have to go back, for those who don't know, and set up what in the world the Nazis are doing in the Soviet Union anyway. Hitler rises to power. Remember, the Nazis rose to power. At first, they were an extreme minority, and I mean an extreme minority. Germany had been brutally beaten down after World War I with idiotic, uh, just absolute idiotic obligations the world had put on them. It wiped out the German economy. The German people are proud people. They were low. So a bunch of different, the Nazis weren't the only one, a bunch of different You'd call them probably nationalist, maybe patriotic, whatever label you want to put on it. A bunch of pro-rah-rah Germany groups begin to rise. The Nazis were a tiny group. They were 3% of the government at one point in time. They were just a small group. But they were true believers. They believed in their sicko ideology all the way. And they had a charismatic leader. A scumbag who would move on to murder. I mean, honestly, let's set aside the Holocaust for a moment. How many dead bodies is Adolf Hitler directly responsible for without the Holocaust? Millions millions and millions and millions. I think the number is 20 million Russians alone, I believe. It's somewhere up there. It's absurd. And I'm talking civilians. But eventually the Nazis rise. They take over. Hitler takes over Germany, and he doesn't just want to bring Germany back. He wants Germany to be a conquering nation. Now, we're going to pause on this for just a moment because we have to explain something about the nature of man. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that men who want to conquer nations only lived in the past. Oh, that's uh, Alexander the Great or Hitler or Julius Caesar or Genghis Khan. Thank the good Lord we are past those days now. No, we are not. 
There is an Adolf Hitler, a Joseph Stalin, a Genghis Khan, a Julius Caesar, and Alexander the Great out there today. Will they get the means necessary to accomplish said conquest? I don't know. But man doesn't change. That's part of the reason history is so fascinating. But anyway, Hitler gets on the rise, takes over a bunch of Europe. He strikes a deal with the Soviets, which is amazing he was ever able to strike a deal at all with the Soviets because Hitler hated the Soviets. He hated communists. He hated communism. He hated Jews, and the Soviets had a bunch of all those, and sometimes, all, most of the time, all three at once. He hated the Soviet Union. He blamed them very much for a lot of things that happened during World War I, for his beloved Germany going downhill. He hated them, and Stalin should have seen this coming, but he didn't. They strike a non-aggression pact, and they decide to spit-roast Poland. The Germans come in from one side, the commies come in from the other, they split the country up, and the poor Poles get absolutely brutalized. But Hitler was a conqueror, or wanted to be anyway. I guess you could say he was one for a brief period of time. Hitler wanted more. So Hitler comes up with Operation Barbarossa. What is that? That's the invasion of the Soviet Union. And it is, remember this, we love World War II. Everybody loves reading about World War II or hearing about World War II. The second I told you this is World War II, your ears probably perked up. It's just, it's the largest event, war or otherwise, in the history of mankind. It's fascinating. But we like to focus on our part of World War II as Americans, which is fine too. You know, you you focus on Pearl Harbor and D-Day. Iwo Jima, the atom bomb, the Battle of the Bulge, things like that. And that's not as if those are small events. Those were huge, critical parts of the war. Like 90% of the war was fought on the Eastern Front. Isn't that amazing to think about? I forget what the exact stat is. I believe it's eight out of every nine Germans killed in World War II was killed by a Russian. The scale, I know, I know, Chris is over there scowling. It hurts to talk about this, right? Because who wants to give credit to those dirty communist scum? But it's true. It's true. That doesn't lessen America's contributions or Britain's contributions or Canada's or anyone else. But what it means is the Germans took their massive, advanced, powerful, well-trained army They took almost the entire thing. I mean, the divisions they were throwing into the Soviet Union. They took almost the entire thing and they sent it into the Soviet Union with the full knowledge that conquering the Soviet Union is a monumental task and not one anybody has ever really pulled off before, unless you're going to count Genghis Khan and everybody really can step to the side when we talk about the greatest conquerors in history because Genghis Khan is unique. Everything got freezing cold and snowed over in Russia, and the Mongols were all, oh, nice. This is what we're used to. Better for our horses. (laughs) Anyway, back to our story. Operation Barbarossa takes off. And there's a – when I say we could do a history story, because I'm going to do a history story every week now, as you know. 
I get to do it uninterrupted. As you can tell, I don't have to give out the phone number. I don't have to tease guests. We just get to talk history every single week. Then I don't know. I don't know how long they're going to be. In case you're wondering that question, how long are these going to be? I have made it a commitment to myself to have absolutely no idea. That's another reason I don't do them in my radio show anymore. I had to limit them or something. They may be 20 minutes. They may be two hours and 20 minutes. I don't know. You're going to have to wait till the thing comes out. But back to our story. The invasion, the Eastern Front, the German invasion of the Soviet Union was so incredibly massive that it by itself, by itself, is the largest conflict in the history of mankind. We're just talking millions and millions. By the time we're at our story, by the time we get to the Battle of Kursk, the Soviet, the Red Army, is like six and a half million people. The, the, the Germans are three. It's just huge. And the, the loss of life is, oh, 100,000 here, 200,000 there. Oh, we surrounded this 300,000-man army and wiped it out. It's just it's staggering to think about. Stalin, by now, is, air fingers quote, an ally of the West. Churchill hated his guts, never trusted him. FDR, eh, maybe had some commie leanings himself, was more understanding when it comes to Joseph Stalin. Maybe we can put it that way if we're trying to be nice. To FDR's credit, although I admit I am not the biggest FDR fan, to his credit, he did realize you're not beating the German war machine without the Red Army. You do need them. You need them. You need them on your side. And we're going to do a couple macro level things before we get back into the battle so we can all understand where we're at. In the back of FDR's mind was always this. We were also at war with Japan. Remember, we were attacked by Japan, not Germany. Um, the American people very much wanted the war fought with Japan. Focus on Japan. Take a look at a world map. As long as you're not driving somewhere, pull out a world map. What do you see close to Japan? What I'm saying is, unlike Churchill, FDR was probably probably more in need of Stalin and the Red Army because he thought to himself, we're going to potentially need them to attack Japan from the other side and help us out and help us finish that war. You see how that works? Wars, diplomacy, generals, presidents, dictators, they are complicated affairs. Life is gray. Life is extremely gray. And look, remember, we're talking about Joseph Stalin, one of, if not the monsters in the history of mankind, a monster. the, the, The guy may have even been a demon. Joseph Stalin, I mean, a lot of these dictators, even the murderous ones, were kind of nerds who got themselves into power and then just kind of enjoyed torturing and murdering people. Stalin? Stalin murdered people for fun before he ever had power. Stalin was a famous bank robber in the Soviet Union. The, the, the dude was just had a knack for violence. I know, Chris. I know. I know. He just was one of those guys. Back to our story from the macro level before we get back to the, the nitty-gritty part. We, Americans, and the Brits... We knew we wanted into Europe. We wanted into fortress Europe. We didn't have a toehold in there yet. The Brits had fought off the Germans. 
We had obviously been making advancements over in the Pacific, but we weren't really in Europe yet. We finally decided with some prompting from Churchill that we would, you know, bounce from North Africa and then go into Italy, which Churchill called a soft underbelly, which turned out to be absurdly not true. Yeah, it was a soft underbelly when the useless Italians were in charge of it. As soon as the Italians were bounced and Germany took over, well, the Germans, as bad as the Nazis were, they knew what they were doing when it came to military campaigns in the country of Italy is a complete fortress. We never really took over the whole daggone thing till the end of the war. But all that's going on also at the prompting of Joseph Stalin. Why does Joseph Stalin care about us attacking Italy? Why is he so anxious for us to get involved in Europe, invade, do something? Because Joseph Stalin is busy getting his teeth kicked in all across his own country. We remember Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union as a couple things. It's usually called suicidal. It's been called the biggest military blunder in human history, or at least it's on the short list. And all that's fair. It's not as if I'm going to sit here and tell you, well, I mean, he was, I mean, it, it could have went either way. But keep this in mind. Hitler and the, so, and the, and the, the Soviets, it was not a fair fight at first. Hitler's Germans, Hitler's Wehrmacht, Hitler's Nazi army, however you want to put it, they beat the crap out of the Soviets for a long time. They were surrounding gigantic Soviet armies and wiping them out because the Germans had a really, I mean, frankly, let's be honest about it, nobody likes to pay compliments to Germany in World War II, kind of the bad guy, but they did have a unique and, in my opinion, very cool military philosophy when it came to war. The Germans famously used to say, the Americans and the Brits, they like to feel out things with their fingers instead of punching with their fist. You see, America and the, and the Soviets and, and the Brits and others, we would you know, fan out on a long line. Let's say put an armored division here and, and some infantry troops here and fan out on a long line and kind of progress this general direction, not the Germans. The Germans would ball up these huge armored divisions of tanks and just smash through a specific place and then smash through another specific place. And what they would do, and they did this repeatedly in the Soviet Union, I'm not going to bore you with all the specific details, but they would smash through in two different places and then simply surround whole Soviet armies. Smash through, meet together behind them, you have now made a circle around them, line up your artillery and everything else, and simply fire until they are all ground into hamburger. And they did this repeatedly, time and time and time again. Stalin's army was getting crushed. Now, it wasn't all bad news for the Soviets, though. And believe me, I'm taking a huge, complicated affair and I'm making it as simplistic as possible out of the interest of time, there were a couple things going real well for the Soviets. One, the freaking weather. The Soviet weather is just terrible. It's an absolutely horrible place weather-wise. It's not just the freezing cold. We'll get to that in a moment. 
The summers are blazing hot in certain places. It's just a brutal place to fight. The Germans were making good headway, especially in the summertime, not so much in the winter. They started calling them the summer Germans because every summer they would launch off these huge attacks. So the Germans would make great headway in the in the summer. But the bad news for the Germans is they couldn't get out of their own hateful way. You see, the Soviet people did not exactly love the communists, and they certainly didn't love Joseph Stalin. Hitler had an opportunity. The Germans had an opportunity to be treated as liberators, to be welcomed in by the people. Oh, gosh, you're here to get rid of Stalin? Here, let me get you some Russian bread or whatever they eat over there. Instead, well, Nazis are going to Nazi. They start hunting down Jews, of which there were many in Russia. And it wasn't just Jews. They would just simply storm into Russian towns and they would treat them like, well, like conquering armies have always treated conquered peoples. Massacre the leadership, wholesale slaughter of the civilians, terrible things done to women and children. They just acted like complete barbarians. And so the Soviets ended up having really nice pockets of civilian resistance, which really slowed the Germans down. That's one. Two, this this hurts. Talk about paying, paying homage to all the biggest scumbags. Stalin did do something really smart. I'm sure it wasn't his, I'm sure it wasn't his idea, although he took credit for it. Who knows? Maybe it was, though. Stalin did something I find to be extremely fascinating. They're factories. The Soviet Union, because of its size, has all kinds of factories where they manufacture things. Stalin knew he was going to be unable to slow down the Germans to stop the Germans before they overtook those factories. Well, remember, that's really important. Wars are not simply fought on the front. They're fought in the factories, churning out bullets and bombs and tanks and planes and things like that. You must have them. That's why we overwhelmed the world. We just had so many factories, no one could do anything about it. Stalin knew this. He knew we couldn't stop the Germans. He knew those factories were critical. So, in a remarkable collective effort, even though I guess it's collectivism, he tore down the factories. He tore down the guts of the factories, threw everything on trains, and trained everything to the eastern part of the Soviet Union out of the reach of the Nazis And then essentially just rebuilt the factories in another part of the country so he could start churning out more tanks and things like that, which he had to do. Why? Because this is going to get us to the important part of our story. Well, the Germans had been making great gains in territory and then really stalling out in the wintertime. But these Soviet people were giving the German army absolute fits. And I mean fits when it comes to things like taking over whole cities. The, the, the Soviets simply were able to dig in, thanks to Zhukov and some other great generals, in places like Moscow. Hitler wanted Moscow. Hitler tried for Moscow, threw a whole bunch of forces up there, laid Moscow under siege. They were eating their shoes. Never took Moscow. And then, and this was really the beginning of the end of the Eastern Front, Hitler lost in Stalingrad. 
And it was touch and go. Stalingrad is such an amazing battle. I will definitely cover it another time. It's such an incredible affair where Hitler made one more deep, deep thrust into the Soviet Union trying to get the Stalingrad under heel. And the Soviets just were able to fight him off and then winter came and then reinforcements came and the Germans were starving and hundreds of thousands of Germans surrendered and they weren't allowed. It was a disaster, a national embarrassment for Germany and a complete disaster. Now, if Hitler was sane, well, I guess he would have done a lot of different things if he was sane, but if Hitler was in any way a sane human being who could be reasoned with, After Stalingrad, Hitler would have done this. Hitler would have done the hard thing and tactically retreated and let the Soviet Union go. When I say tactically retreat, I mean mean take every single German unit in the Soviet Union and pull them back to within your own borders because by this point in time, You know the Brits are coming. You know the Americans are coming. You know the Soviet Union is going to be taking their anger out on you. Retreat back. Fortify your lines. Make your country and the territories you own an impregnable surface. That's what Hitler should have done by this point in time. But he didn't. Insane people are called insane for a reason. Hitler decided... He was going to make one last big go at taking over the Soviet Union. And of course, he was going to wait until summertime. Remember, I already told you the Soviets referred to the Germans as the summer soldiers for this reason. Now, I made this sound like the Germans are dead. Completely dead in the water. No chance. This was idiotic. That may be unfair for this reason. One, no, we know now the Germans didn't have everything they had to have to take over the Soviet Union. They shouldn't have done this final thrust, but they still did have some really incredible units, including a specific part of an incredible unit I'm going to get to in a moment. So that's one. Germany had some great units and had some great troops left. Two, the Soviets may have been able to withstand the Germans at Moscow, And it's Stalingrad. But the Soviets had taken such a massive loss of life. Such a massive loss of equipment. It's not as if by this point in time the Soviets had held out in all these places and they were feeling great. The Soviets were in pain. Real pain by this point in time. Real pain. Now, back to that specific thing I was talking about. The Germans... And the Soviets, and really every nation does this during war. And it is fascinating to dig into it just a little. You know, I don't bore you with the details when it comes to history. It's fascinating to dig into how much engineering and scientific and technological advancement comes into play in wars. The Soviets were trying to figure out what is the next plane? What's the next tank? What's the next submarine? What's the next battleship? Just like the Germans were trying to figure that out. Just like the Americans were. Just like the Brits were. Just like the Japanese were. Who has the scientific field? Who has the scientific people of knowledge who are going to be able to create, envision and create an advanced weapon 
and also has the manufacturing capability to produce said advanced weapon. See, this is the stuff they don't make movies about because it's not sexy, right? You want to see somebody diving in a trench and killing 50 Germans with a bayonet. And obviously that's cool, so do I. No, no, no judgment here. But so much of this stuff takes place over a set of blueprints over somebody figuring out, what if we tweak this engine here? What if we add armor here? What if we take away armor there? What if we try this? What if we try that? And if we do try it and it works, how many of these do we have the manufacturing capability to make? Wars are fought in that way. Wars are fought in that way. By now, Germany had something. They had a bunch of different kinds of tanks but they had something specifically called the Tiger Tank. The Tiger Tank, one, has a really, really cool name. Let's all just be honest about that. And two, it had something else. Armor. Now, hold on. I know what you're saying. Jesse, you idiot. All tanks have armor. Well, here's something I've always found fascinating. You may not. Different tanks from different countries have different amounts of armor for different reasons. You see, they haven't changed laws of physics. Not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. The truth is this. Armor equals weight. Weight makes you slow. Speed can be of great value. Armor can be of great value. The Tiger tanks had something. Well, they had front armor that was virtually impenetrable. You could get them on the side. You could get them in the rear. You could get them on the top. We'll get to that in a moment. You could get them on the top of the tank. If you were shooting at them from the front, they were virtually impenetrable. And it was driving the Soviets crazy. The Soviets had great tanks. They were T-34 tanks. They were outstanding tanks. They were getting their teeth kicked in by these Tiger tanks. The Tiger tanks could take out a T-34 from 2,000 meters away. A T-34, it would have to get within a few hundred meters of a Tiger tank to do any damage. What advantage is that? I can get you over 1,000 meters before you have the ability to even hurt me? That's a big deal. And when the Germans are amassing, as they are, this is called Operation Citadel, when they're amassing for a major offensive and you're looking across the field of battle at a lot of Tiger tanks, you start asking yourself some hard questions. One of them is, can we defeat this at all? The second one is, okay, we have to. How? Well, the Soviets had their engineers too. They had a plan, but we'll get to that in just a moment. The Germans had more than just Tiger tanks. They had Panther tanks and all these other kinds of things. And remember, the Germans had a bunch of light armor as well. And this is probably because I'm a dude. I don't know the reason. But when I look at something like a Tiger tank that's virtually impenetrable from the front, you know what I say to myself? Maybe you do this too. Maybe you make the same mistake. You know what I say to myself? Well, why not just put that armor all over the tank, the sides, the back, and the top? And why not only make those? Why do you even need anything else? Well, because then the tank would be virtually unmovable. It would be so heavy, even if it could move, it wouldn't move fast. And yeah, like Chris just pointed out, it would cost a fortune. 
The truth is having a piece of light armor that moves very, very fast, it is a value too, just a different value. You have to learn as a commander how to use whatever strengths your armor has to the best of its ability. Everything has a purpose for it. The Germans were working on something else, but so were the Soviets. What were they working on? Well, this is World War II. It's a three-dimensional battle. They were each working on different armaments for their planes that were specific anti-tank armaments. The Germans, they came up with putting two heavy machine guns on the wings of their planes that could penetrate the top of Soviet tank armor because the top armor was never made a priority because who's going to attack your tank from the top? Oops. The Soviets were doing the same thing. In a nasty, nasty bit of military hardware, the Soviets had originally been taking these tanks, these dive bombers really, and dropping a bomb out there. Okay, here's your bomb, Vlad. Go kill somebody. Well, that's inaccurate. It's wind, clouds, I mean, who knows? It bom- one bomb is inaccurate. Plus, you don't need one gigantic bomb. You just need something that will penetrate the top of a Soviet tank's armor. What they did was they developed these clusters, huge clusters. They dropped these one, two, three-pound bombs, but they're armor-penetrating, and only one of them had to penetrate to finish off the tank. And so the plane would fly over these rows of Soviet tanks and just drop. I mean, just picture a, picture a bag of Skittles. That's probably what it looked like from the bottom. I Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm making that up a little bit. It gives you some idea. Just drop a big bag of Skittles at the bottom of the plane. How accurate do you have to be when there are that many of them and you only got to hit once? So they're each developing these things. Now, that's from the German side of it and the Soviet side of it. The Soviets did have a couple huge advantages. There are several military experts, of which I am not, who say this was the difference in the battle. The Soviets had intelligence. And as much as I hate dirty communist scum, Soviets have always been really, really, really good at the spy game. They just haven't. Look, that hurts me as much as it hurts you. They've been and are now still really, really good at the spy game, at covert warfare. They ended up getting their hands because, of course, they had an undercover spy. No one even knows who this guy is to this day. Otherwise, I'd give you his name. They think he was a high-up guy in the German high command, only he was working for the Soviets. He gave them all the information on Operation Citadel. This is what the Germans are going to do. This is where they're going to do it. And look, I'm not going to bore you with details, but just a heads up on what Operation Citadel was. I want you to picture this. You can picture Germany on the West and the Soviet Union on the East, right? Okay, we're, we're clear on that. Because of the ebb and flow of how this, this, this front of the war had gone, there was a bulge into the German part that the Soviets controlled. Think of it like a thumb. There's a thumb. There's a Soviet thumb sticking into the German front. The German Now, it's a lot thicker than a thumb, obviously, but the German plan was they were going to attack the base of the thumb from the top and the bottom like they'd done a thousand times before and circle it, cut it off, decimate it. That was the plan for Operation Citadel. 
but the Soviets found out because of their agent. They found out, and they I I would I would kill to be able to see this. If I luck out and get into heaven, I'm going to ask God to show me so many things from the past. He's going to get so annoyed with me. He's going to throw me out. But I want to see how the Soviets prepared this area. You see, they prepared trenches for their men. Minefield after minefield after mine. It was just a sea of minefields. It was multi-layered defenses. It was tank traps. What is a tank trap? Here's a tank a tank trap, an anti-tank ditch. Picture a ditch that's wide enough so a tank's tracks won't go clear over the top of it. Okay, clear on that. On the German side of a tank trap, there would be a slope essentially leading the tank right into the ditch. Sounds kind of weird, right? Why would you do such a thing? Well, here's why they did such a thing. On the opposite side of the ditch where the tank would have to come out, there would essentially be a steep angle so the tank couldn't come out. In fact, the tank trap was often built so the gun would bury itself in the bottom because the angle was so steep as it went down. You can't drive through them. Sounds really simplistic, right? Wait, they just dug a ditch? Simple solutions are quite often the best solutions. Never forget that. But on top of the tank trenches and the man trenches and the minefield, minefields, the Soviets did something else. Because remember, those T-34s, those tanks were having a real hard time against the German tanks. So the Soviets were desperately trying to find a way to stop them. They had all kinds of anti-tank guns built into the ground. They dug them into the ground in multiple places, essentially making stationary anti-tank fields is what they did. It must have been some of the most fascinating land fortifications ever. If you're an absolute geek on this stuff, because I'm going to stop with the details on it, I would highly recommend do some image searches on your computer for the Battle of Kursk and check out how cool some of these Soviet formations were. And if you want to picture like a field of anti-tank guns, there would be a huge gap And then another field of anti-tank guns. Why the gap? Because they wanted to funnel the Germans in between the two sets of guns so then they could shoot the tanks from the sides where they were more vulnerable. These Soviets were good. I mean, these Soviets were... By now, the Red Army... Oh, gosh, this hurts me to say it. By now, the Red Army, by this point in time, is possibly the best fighting force in the world. I know, that hurts. That that hurts. All right, hang on. I need to go vomit. All right, I'm back. Now, the Soviets know the Germans are coming. They don't know exactly when, but they know the Germans are coming. And so on top of the trenches and everything else, they're building bridges. They're building roads. I mean, the, the things they put into the Battle of Kursk, are, are it's staggering. It's staggering. Germany gathers about 800,000 men. Soviets are over a million men. Soviets need to know when this thing is coming. What happens? I don't know whether this is luck. I don't know whether you can call this just good on the Soviets for being proactive. Well, the Germans were always sending out engineers, field engineers, not nerd engineers, field engineers to go into those minefields. Those minefields were death for a tank. So they were always sending out engineers to clear out the minefields. The Soviets went and grabbed one of them. They managed to get their hands on one, brought him back, 
And through some <clears throat> stern interrogation, they found out the exact date and exact time the Soviets were coming. This turned out to be a huge part of the Battle of Kursk. Why? The Soviets, they waited until that exact date and time, and they trained their artillery pieces on the German areas and waited till the Germans amassed all their tanks and troops in one area and then bombarded it with artillery. The Germans... The Germans return fire. The, the casualties are already, they're, they're beyond belief. They're beyond belief as these sides are blowing each other to bits. And there are so many cool parts about this thing. The Germans had, remember the minefields? The Germans had these like remote controlled tanks that had gigantic steel wheels on the front of them that churn up the ground to drive through the minefields and the steel wheels would go over the mines and set off the mines and you'd basically be creating a path for your tanks. I mean, there's so many cool things like that as one side trying to one-up the other and your minefield and my anti-tank thing. But they start blowing in there. And remember, it's a thumb, right? And the Germans are trying to pinch it from the top and bottom. Set aside the top. You're welcome to look into the top. But the top was more favorable terrain for the Soviets. They essentially, even though it was a big front, they knew the Germans had to come in like a couple specific places. So they just fortified those and stopped the Germans. The South was more of a problem. The South was the Asian steppe. It's just more wide open. And the Germans can and did come in from everywhere. So it was Germany doing what they'd always done, storming through Soviet lines. But then the Soviets fighting them back. And eventually... As I'm trying to get our story wrapped up here, I don't want to go too long. Eventually, the Soviets had something the Germans didn't. Remember I told you the Soviet army was about 6 million strong by this point. Germany, about 3 million. Soviet army had another big advantage by this point in time. One the Germans very much did not have. The Soviet army was only fighting against one country. They weren't even engaged with Japan. Germany, because of their own idiocy, Germany was taking on the entire world. The Soviets had reserves. Without those reserves, and this is my pure opinion, I could be wrong, without those reserves, I think the Germans probably win the Battle of Kursk. I don't think they take over the Soviet Union. I think they probably win that Battle of Kursk. But as the battle rages on, the Soviets are pouring more and more troops into the battle. And it's just absolutely more than the Germans are able to withstand. And then it gets really bad when the Germans find out they're not able to withstand it and they start pulling back. They're pulling back through funneled areas because by now you know, I can't go here. I can't go there. We have to drive through here. Well, the Soviets know that too. And as is often the case, the German army gets absolutely slaughtered on the way out. On the way out. The Battle of Kursk. A lot of people say it's one of those battles that changed history, changed the course of the war. I'll just give you my personal opinion on this. I don't agree because by now, I don't think there's any way the Germans could possibly have defeated 
the Soviets in the Soviet Union. I don't think it's humanly possible. I just don't think the manpower was there. I, what I'm saying is I think the Eastern Front was already decided before the Battle of Kursk, no matter how the Battle of Kursk kicked off. But let's not lose sight of this. During this battle, back to the very beginning of the show, what I talked about, men cooking alive. During this battle, there were days when each side would lose hundreds of tanks. Not a tank, hundreds of tanks. The German tanks were famous for having the turret on the top blow clear off and land far away from the rest of the tank. The Soviet tanks, the Germans would hit them with things that would blow the tank into tiny pieces, the entire thing. And there are more individual stories than you can count from Germans and Soviets alike of men being blown from tanks and listening to their buddies burn alive on the inside. The story about the end of some of these days when there were these huge tank battles and you could hardly see the sun in some areas because there were so many tanks putting out black smoke from where they'd gotten blown out. Fields and fields of dead bodies in burning tanks. While we talk about the cool parts of history, and we always will here on History with Jesse Kelly, let's not lose sight of the fact this had to be one of the most awful scenes in the history of mankind. Now, it's hard to feel bad for anyone, right? Who are you shedding a tear for, the Nazis or the commies? But let's remember, the Eastern Front in World War II was a very, very, very ugly affair. That's all. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.